All right. Hello, guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Marissa Marmalejo, not Justin Ochoa, and I'm super excited for this debut episode with my amazing, incredible friend, Megan Chu. Megan is a music therapy grad student with me at TWU, and I'll go ahead and uh, let her introduce herself a little bit and tell you whatever she wants about herself. Hey, Megan. Hello, Marissa. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited. I am just very honored to be on this with you, and I can't wait to share my story. Yeah. And so, I yeah. Know, um, I know you've had a super long day, so I really appreciate you meeting <laughs> me. It's currently, this episode is being recorded at 8.40 p.m. Monday night after our three-hour music therapy research graduate class, so yeah, it's a huge deal. I'm super appreciative. Um, and so let's go ahead and start with your background. Like we haven't really gotten to have a conversation about your experience and how you got into music in the first place. So start with that. How did you get into music? Yeah, so um, I was involved with music at the age of three. My grandma taught me piano and it just kind of went on from there. My mom was a dancer and my aunt played clarinet and my other aunt played piano. And so we were kind of just very, very music oriented, but no one ever really pursued music because I feel like music is such a field that is frowned upon. Like it doesn't make money and it doesn't help and stuff like that. So I really just took music at like a grain of salt I did piano. Um, I started cello when I was in third grade, and that's when I really fell in love with music, and I really fell in love with orchestra. And then I moved the freshman for my freshman year of high school, and my high school didn't have an orchestra, so I was forced to join band, and I played trombone. And that was a time we don't really talk about anymore. Um, that was that was a time. That was a mood. That was high school. I feel like it really made my high school years very um, safe. I think I found a really good group of friends through that, and I really developed a family through band. But I was still really into orchestra, and so I had this mindset of doing music in college, but I also wanted to be pre-med. And so I found like my happy medium and I applied to Austin College. And that's a small private liberal arts school in Sherman, Texas. And so I studied chemistry there and I did music also. And so my hope was to do pre-med and go to med school. That kind of took a good turn as I wanted to apply to med school but I also didn't want to apply to med school because I didn't want to give up that dream of my music dream and so I found music therapy and it was a time where I really had the opportunity to take a gap year and figure out what I wanted to do so I worked in the hospital um I found that I liked the hospital setting but that wasn't something I wanted to pursue for the whole rest of my career right and so I applied to TWU and um, I got into the music therapy program. And that was when I really found out what music therapy was. 
and the ability to combine psychology and neurology with my music is really important to me. And so that's kind of how, where I've gotten to this point right now. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't know a lot of those details that you just gave, starting with that it was a huge part of your family music, you know, and that, um, you know, I think that music in the family makes it seem like it's so special and like it's so close to home. And when nobody has pursued an education in it, crossing that line is totally different because music education it just takes on this entire like academic approach that you had no idea even existed before you start. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. I had a really similar experience with that in my family, but so remind me where you grew up in Texas. Cause I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. So I was born in Mesquite, Texas, and then I lived there all my life up until high school. And so Beginning of high school, my mom said, we're moving. So then we moved to Wiley, Texas, and then I've been there ever since. And then I went to Sherman, Texas, and now we're in Denton, Texas. Right. But I've been in Texas all my life. So, and I don't have any dreams of going out of state. And I would love to stay in Texas because like family is here and friends are here. And so, yeah, go oh. Texas. Go Texas. Oh my goodness. Yeehaw. No. Uh, so what do you think about there not being an orchestra program at your high school, you know, from your perspective now, because obviously then there's not really anything you could have done about it. I don't know what you thought about it then, actually, if you want to go into that. Yeah, it was kind of rough for me because that's all I ever known. I was not my heart was not set on band, much less trombone. And so just the idea of not being able to pursue something that I was really passionate about, it kind of put like a mood dampener on me because I moved, it was a new environment. I didn't have that many friends. It was the start of high school where everything is basically new to you and you're trying to think about your future. And so, I was still able to compete in all region and all state, but I had to be in some music um, class. And so band kind of allowed me to compete for all region and all state. And I was not about to join choir. I did not like to sing. And wait, so- Wait, did you audition? That was kind of- Sorry, did you audition on cello or trombone? Yeah, so I auditioned oh. on cello. Okay. And um, the band director signed off on it because you needed like a, I guess a director to kind of sign off. And so, yeah, I competed on cello and it was fine. And it was a great experience, but it was really hard to get back in and play with the orchestra once I was in Origin because I was like, how do I play with other people? and you know, it's it's way different than playing in band. You know, it's a louder environment. If you mess up, you don't really care. They don't really care. But in orchestra, when you're like right there and your string squeaks or you drop your bow, like everybody can see, you know? And so I think transitioning into that was kind of hard, but overall it was a great experience. I did experience the band's life, but I also was, wanting the orchestra life so 
Right. Yeah. And so it's not surprising to me that you didn't have an orchestra program just because in Texas, it's all about marching band as Justin has talked about so many times on this episode. And I mean, I've lived that too, because when I was in high school, I was super into marching band, super into band music and wind ensemble music. And as soon as I left high school, I realized that's not what's popular. Like, that's just not what what musicians you know in education and academia really care about and so it was a huge shock to me culture shock when I got to UNT and I was like uh I have to audition for orchestras which I never made so like I have no idea what the orchestra experience is like but I can imagine it's like way more intense than the band setting yeah I I had the opportunity to play in the Sherman Symphony during my undergrad and that was really cool because we had wind and percussion and orchestra and so I did not miss sitting in the brass section and it was really nice to just be able to be with your own kind of cello family and then also play really hard repertoire and just provide a concert for people and our audience was kind of more geared toward like older adults um like seniors and so just like having them sit in the audience and kind of listen to symphony music it was a really proud moment of mine and just having that ability to get back into music and i think that's what really drove me into wanting to pursue music rather than going through the pre-med route oh Okay. Yeah. I did. I never realized that you were, well, I knew you studied chemistry, but so I guess that should tell me all I need to know that you really were interested in like some kind of medical music therapy from the start, you know, just kind of like the medical take on that, which is interesting to me. Cause that was not, um, that was not my experience. Like I was more like the psychological clinical mental health part. And now I've totally transitioned Um, But anyways, I wanted to ask you what the demographics were like at your high school and what they were like at your college. So your high school, I guess you can talk about the one in Wiley since you spent the most time there, right? Yeah, so growing up, it was um, predominantly Caucasian and African American. And I was kind of like the lone 2% Asian Mm -hmm. And um, so when we moved to Wiley, it's predominantly Caucasian. Um, There was, I was lucky enough to find a group of Asians. (laughs) And that was kind of like my like group, my niche, my squad, other than being in band. Um, Because in band, we had a lot of diversity. Um, A lot of my friends, in the brass section, it was a lot of males. <laughs> like I was the only female trombonist for maybe like the last three out of the four years I was there. And so that was um, interesting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Just wow. being in that environment and um, going to like low brass parties, that was crazy. It was just like all male and I was like, okay, I'm here, hi, bye, <laughs> type deal. Yeah. Um, so, so since I didn't, I had no idea that you even played trombone, which is so funny to me still. So can you like 
can you talk a little bit more about that and your experiences like you know being one of the only or the only girl <laughs> yeah so um so in middle school you get tested for if you want to be in band and i just thought what the heck let me just see what i would test into and he gave me trombone and so i was like i never played trombone but this is a great thing to experience. So I, when, when I moved, I met the trombones and um, when I met the group, it was kind of awkward at first because they all kind of huddled around me and they formed like a circle and it was just me. And they went around and said their names and stuff. And I looked around and it, it was just me. I was the only female. Yeah. And at that point, I wasn't comfortable with any of them. So I was kind of like really timid <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I just need to get through this introduction and I need to mind my own business and I need to find other friends that are girls and hopefully everything will be okay. But after that kind of like awkward transitional phase, they kind of became like my big brothers and it was really nice to have that sort of like, I guess, male figure there. Um, so it was like really cool to have like older, like juniors and seniors there who already like lived through bands and their experiences and they were applying to colleges and stuff. And then it was also really nice to have um, boys like my age. So like we, we had classes together and we were also in band together and so it was nice to have those friendships, but it was also like, I got made fun of a lot because I was the only girl. Right. But um, it also kind of gave me experience to kind of like toughen up, you know, just to kind of have like, I'm with cool kids and I'm not a dude, but I can be a dude. Like I'm macho and don't mess with me. <laughs> right. So that was like a good experience. Yeah. Wow. Cool. So. Okay, so yeah, that's crazy. I had some kind of like, I mean, I was a flute player. So, I mean, it was obviously like girls, all like majority girls, like a couple of guys. But my experience in like the top ensemble at my high school, just because I was like the youngest and then I had no friends. So like, you know, some older people befriended me and it was like looking back I'm like I don't know if I liked that experience or not just because I got picked on so much and I feel like that's kind of like reflective of like when you're in the minority in music you know and in classical music well in all in all fields of music and like areas of music including music therapy mm -hmm. right like when you're in the minority it just has this effect on you like that even when it's subtle and it's like unintentional like you just know like you're like mm, I'm not completely comfortable with this dynamic but I'm gonna make it work and like that's just kind of like what we've had to learn to do in so many areas of our life in so many ways like that's just one of of many I agree I there was this awkward transition phase where I had to just kind of either blend in or 
kind of be added. Right. And it really didn't help at first that I identify as Asian, right. identify as Asian American, and I'm also female. So just kind of inserting myself into a predominantly all male group with those factors going on for me, it was really hard at first, I think, for them to kind of accept me. Right. And it kind of just had to, in a way, I had to gain their trust, which kind of sucks in a way because we shouldn't have to subject ourselves to that. But after gaining their trust and gaining, um, forming and developing that kind of friendship, that was when they really kind of saw past those factors and then really saw me as like, oh, yeah, she's one of us. Right. Yeah. So um, I remember a conversation. I don't know if it was like between just me and you or if it was in our multicultural class, but I remember you saying you had an experience with like your group of friends that were predominant, like I think they were all white. And was that, am I remembering correctly? I just remember you talking about like your experience with that and how like you had to act, you know, like be like the token, like Asian and like, you know, was that in um, or was that in college? So there was an experience I had where um, I kind of was made fun of in high school. When I first got to high school that freshman year, people said I had like a ghetto accent and I was like, I don't know what that is yeah, and I don't think I mean yeah like I don't you know and um because they thought where I came from Mesquite was like in the hood and I had that ghetto accent they saw me as like just an imposter which really in turn like I when I was thinking back about it I like didn't know how I sounded and I definitely didn't think I had an accent, much less a ghetto accent. And so that kind of just, from then on, I was really timid and cautious about how I acted and how I sounded. Um, just like making sure like I don't speak abruptly or I don't speak with an accent. And when other people say like I have a Southern accent and I don't think I have a Southern accent, it's just really hard for me to kind of like, I just have to be really cautious about my inflection and the speed and the tone of my voice. And right. so um, being in an all Caucasian, like all white friend group, it was really hard because people would say, oh, Megan, you're whitewashed. And I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I, I did. They just probably think that I acted white. But in my head, I was thinking, well, I'm American, I identify as American, I was born in the States, so, I mean, I guess, thank you, <laughs> like, it's a compliment, but. Like, you just don't know how to take that, when you're young, especially, because you're, like, you don't even know who you are at that point, so anything anyone tells you, you're, like, mm, I don't know if that was an insult or a compliment, so thank you, but also screw off, like, you know. Exactly, so. I mean, all my life, when I was thinking about it, I identified as American because I was born in the States and I spoke English. So those were the factors that led me to think that I was American. Right. 
And so for me to identify as Asian, that really didn't happen until I got to maybe college was when I started to say, yeah, I identify as Asian, Asian American and American. But all my life, I was like, I'm American. That's end of story, period. Yeah. And and do you think that once you got to college, because like the demographics or the, yeah, the demographics were a little bit different that you felt more comfortable identifying yourself as Asian? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Because high school was so predominantly Caucasian and you're kind of just like finding your way. And like you said, finding your identity. I really identified as American, end of story. But when I got to college, especially undergrad, um, my undergrad is very diverse. And so we have a lot of Asians. We have a lot of Indians. We have a lot of white people. We have a lot of black people. Like it's very diverse. And so it kind of made me realize that Yes, I can identify as Asian and not be ridiculed. Yeah. And um, it kind of, it was a good thing and a bad thing, but being pre-med, everybody is very competitive, right? So your grades matter, um, what you get on that exam matters, what teacher you take the class from matters, and but nothing is geared towards your race. So right. I wasn't competing with them because I was Asian. I was competing with them because we all wanted to go to med school. Right. And so I think that was the time where I really just had like a sit down with myself and said, it's okay to identify as Asian and Asian American because this is the time that you're finding yourself and that your race isn't defining who gets into med school or who gets the better grade. Like you actually have to study and you know pursue it yourself so right and it helps 100% when you have a support group that you know you feel comfortable with and that reflects you too like I had a very similar experience where when I got to UNT the best friends that I made like I had a close um group of friends and they were like mixed like I mean they're they were like Hispanic and Asian and um and a white friend too. And so like our dynamic was really interesting and I felt so supported and comfortable when they told me that, you know, they had experienced some microaggressions too in, I mean, in their entire life, but like, especially, you know, in college. And so that helps so much when you have people, like you said, like you made Asian friends that like, I'm sure that had an impact on like how you were able to express yourself and how you like really realized who you wanted to be as a person and what you wanted to embrace, who you wanted to identify as like, that's great. Right. I love it. I mean, I feel bad looking back in high school where I was like, I'm just, I'm American. That's it. I hate, I even had, I, I even got to the point where I said, I hate my culture. And I feel like that was just a lot of, outside influences and the environment that I was in to kind of really just make me to the point where I hate my own culture yeah and so it's not until I kind of had to just like sit myself down and say look I can't change my face I can't change my ethnicity I'm just gonna either have to embrace it or hate it 
And so I think that was the turning point of really realizing that I should just embrace it because it's going to be with me forever. Like, I'm not going to wake up one day and I'm going to be Caucasian. So yeah, that was like my real turning point for me. Right. Oh, I mean, and it's not your fault that you felt that way. Like it was basically people pushed that on you, you know, just like questioning who you are and calling you all these things that you're like, you, I mean, it's, and it's with a negative tone. That's why they're called microaggressions, right? Because even if people don't mean it, they're saying these things that make you think negative things about yourself. And that's so sad. You know, it's like, I've had similar experiences where like, I had to, you know, I didn't know what to call myself either. I was like, am I Mexican? I'm, I don't speak Spanish though. So am I American? Like, what am I? And finally, it wasn't even until probably like late in my undergrad that I started identifying as Mexican American, just because I was like, I mean, I'm both, you know, and I'm going to embrace both those parts of my culture even if I'm rejected by both sides, like I'm still both of those things. So screw you. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And so it's funny that you're talking about microaggressions because, um, so background, we just turned in our introduction for our research class. Right. And so, um, I included a little background, um, for my research paper and, I had to really just think back on my experiences with microaggressions. And so something that was so funny, like I laugh about it now, but in elementary school, people used to call me like Ching Chong Chu. Oh my God. And I just like never really acknowledged it, but I never really kind of said anything back to those people who called me that. And so <laughs> going back to like revisiting my memories, I was like, wow, like that's a microaggression. <laughs> and and it just like never, I never acknowledged it. And I never, I feel bad for myself because I never like stood up for myself. You know, I, in elementary school, like nobody, like you're not supposed to think about those things, right? You're supposed to think about like what snack you're going to have when you go home. And so just having that experience happen to me was something that really bothered me. And I think I internalized it for all these years, but I never fully just like sat down with myself and addressed it. And so thinking back to it, I was like, oh my gosh, experienced microaggressions, like even in elementary school. Oh my God, same here. My my thesis had me self-reflecting like a motherfucker. And I was sitting there like going all the way back to kindergarten, remembering that I went to a private, predominantly white school where nobody else looked like me nobody had dark hair which like I have the darkest hair in existence like everybody had blonde hair and I literally remember going home and saying like telling my parents why don't I have I thought it was yellow at the time okay don't make fun of me so I was like why don't I have yellow hair why am I ugly why am I different and my parents trying to tell me like you're not it's just you're not like you're beautiful and you're different and they were tried to encourage me and, and, um, explain to me that, you know, people are different, but at that age, I was just so like, I felt so out of place. And like, I really had to dig into some of those really, really suppressed memories and experiences while doing my thesis as well. So, um, 
can you tell us what your topic is on? Yeah, so if everything goes to plan, <laughs> then um, I will be exploring the racism or experiences of racism, discrimination, xenophobia, and microaggressions toward Asian and Asian music therapists and yes. how this kind of changes um, how they uphold themselves as professionals or just as human beings and how they live their life in general. Because as somebody who has experienced racism and microaggressions, I have become just a little bit more anxious and a lot more shy in how I present myself, you know? And so I think that also with what's happening in the world right now, I think this topic is very prevalent and I think it needs to be addressed and made aware. Oh my so. God. I am so happy that you're doing this. I'm so proud. And it is, it is so relevant considering everything that's going on right now that so many people don't even acknowledge and don't even know about. But the uptick in hate crimes against Asian Americans has increased by 150%. I looked it up today and I, I cannot believe that this is happening and that it's nowhere to be found. Like it's nowhere on social media. There is very little at least. And it's mostly like, you know, coming from Asians, Asians, Asian Americans and allies who will actually speak up about it. And I just, I'm at yeah. a lot of words when it comes to this. Like, so I feel like our viewer, viewers need a solid definition of microaggressions. So just to like kind of give you like an educational moment, <laughs> microaggressions consist of both blatant, which are micro assaults, and subtle forms, which are micro insults. And so both of these are considered um, racism and they are racist remarks. And if you use something like a blatant form of microaggressions to explicitly talk about a racial or a racial or racist thing, then you're also intentionally hurting the person of color and that is not okay. No. And this is also um, microaggressions are used to target the racial uh, racial visibility and invisibility by specifically targeting um, a person's like unique characteristics, like Asian eyes. I've gotten so many comments about how little my eyes are. And I don't understand why that applies because I still see fine. I almost have like 20-20 vision. So I don't know why that applies to your, why that you, why you even have to care. <laughs> so. Seriously. And yeah, so some of those, thank you for, for um, defining that. That's, that is really important um, to define microaggressions. And so anyways, I found this, um, it's like a poster, I guess, from UC Davis Health. And it's amazing. Like it talks about like all of the statistics of like, hate crimes per year. Um, and it gives a couple of examples of um, like microaggressions, not even, these are not even microaggressions, I'm sorry. These are like straight up, like this is straight up racism at its worst level. Like, and it started, you know, we can like 
take it back to Trump and him calling it like the Asian virus and like all these terrible things that people justified and like they agreed with him upon, which I can't even like, I just don't understand that. But people, Asian American people during this time, like some of the things that they heard, like that I was reading on this is like, never come back. Don't ever come back. Like people telling Asian Americans and just, I mean, Asians, you know, anyone who looks Asian. And I know that I cannot even, I could not imagine like what that is like at all. Like, but it's, it must be infuriating and terrible, humiliating. And I know that some of my friends in the, our friends in the program, like told me about how fearful they were about to leave. And it broke my heart because nobody living in this country should experience that. Like that's shit. And that is not what this country is about. Like, I'm like media, (laughs) please shine a light on this. It's so important. What is happening? Yeah. I mean, every single time I get into this topic, I'm just fuming, you know, I, somebody that is currently experiencing this but not it's not being exposed in the media and there's only so much that i can do right and i tried to advocate for us and all the asians and my international friends and it's not enough um it's really disheartening to kind of go through this process during the global pandemic where everybody's anxiety is like at an all-time high and you're already worried about like not dying but on top of that we as asians and asian americans while i do not speak for the whole you know population right me personally i feel really scared to go outside and um fun fact while i was at home i was at target and i was in an aisle like looking for like pancake mix or something and I was just like looking and, you know, trying to see the one I want. And then a mom and her son, and the son was probably like maybe eight to nine, like he was still in the car. And she said out loud, we can't go down the aisle because she's Asian. Right in front of me and like right in front of her son. And it's those types of situations that really make me so pissed because we have to educate others right? We have to educate others about it's wrong to be racist. What you're saying, it is racist. But how can we educate others when parents are literally educating their children to be racist? She was educating their kid to literally look at Asians and say, nope, and then proceed to move on with their life. But it's not fair. It's not fair to us. And I think with the government leaders, the past government leaders, calling it the Chinese virus and calling people of Asian and Asian Americans diseased because I brought over the coronavirus, like me, literally I brought over the coronavirus and telling us that like, we should be the only ones to be quarantined or like we should go back to China and that's infuriating. Like a lot of my friends who are Korean or they're not even from China and people tell them like, you need to go back to China. And they're like, I'm Korean. I'm from South Korea. I don't need to go back to China, you know? And it's just like, 
people are not taking the time out to really realize that Asian Americans, <laughs> like, I was born here. Right. You know? So and the fear, it's like the fear brings out the absolute worst in people. And it's just driven, it was driven even more so by political figures. And that is absolutely horrendous. Like, it's horrific. And so many things that I've heard, like from you and from our friends, I'm just like, I'm in disbelief. And I tried to help as much as I could with some of my friends. Like, I was like, please don't go out. Like, I don't want anything bad to happen. And that shouldn't even be how it is. It's so like, it's so horrible, but like, you know, I, yeah. I mean, at this point, it's like, I was talking to my friend and she identifies as Asian American. And at this point, it's like, even if we put on sunglasses, a mask, and I guess thank God for a mask right now, because it kind of covers your whole face. And if we put on a hat, we still feel like we might be targeted, just because you can tell that we're Asian just by, you know, our skin color, or if we don't have sunglasses, you can tell by our eyes. And so just really taking the precaution and I feel bad because I have to warn my family and I have to tell them to not shop at, you know, Target or Walmart. And if they do that, they need to go in packs, you know, and just kind of, it's good to be overly cautious, but I feel like it takes a toll because it puts everybody in panic mode. And so like for me personally, I, I would rather drive like an additional 30 minutes away to shop in an Asian store where I feel like I'm safe and I'm not judged. Yeah. And so I think it's just, we're all very tired. And I know like the whole world is very tired of this pandemic, but I think it just takes an extra toll on us. Yeah. Because we, we are just so anxious, you know, and on top of that, we have to fear for our safety where we've not ever had to. You know, I mean, I'm sure like it's crossed our minds, but we've never had to really just kind of like look at our surroundings, travel in packs and with the rise of hate crimes, like Asian hate crimes, like it's happening to our elders. And I don't think that people are putting it into perspective that this could be their grandparents. And I'm sure that you would not want your grandparents to be slashed in the face or pushed off a subway rail. You know, it's just like, I don't think they're putting it into perspective and they're really just honing in on it's okay that it's happening to them because they're Asian. And I think with the rise of hate crimes, they also think that maybe the coronavirus would go away. Well, it's not. I'm sorry to tell you. Absolutely not. And just to clarify, like hate crimes and the history of racial violence, like in the United States is horrific. And I was reading this on um, also on the the UC Davis Health um, flyer that I found. And, you know, it talks about the yellow peril, you know, which was the term that officials used to refer to the increased like immigration of Asians over here. And then the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1883 um, to 1933, which meant that Chinese Americans were, trigger warning, were 
beaten, killed, and run out of American cities than Japanese Americans during World War II. Like, it goes on, you know? And so it's like waves, you know? This is not new for America. It's just new for us because, you know, like we're living through it right now and we're young. And yeah, I mean, we can use media and social media as a tool to like expand awareness and to share knowledge about these things that are happening. So yeah, I just wanted to make sure that like, you know, people know this is, this is a problem. Like this has been a problem for so many communities, you know, like we've had this in like the black community, we've had problems in the Mexican and like Latino community. And of course in the Asian community. So yeah, like this is not new. Right. And the topic of racism is not new. And I'm glad that um, like the Black Lives Matter movement gained so much media because it was something that needed to be known. And I just hope that with the rise of Asian hate crimes that this is also being exposed. And hopefully it has a positive side to it. You know, I don't want the increase of media to really make other people hate Asians more. You know, I don't want that to have that negative effect, but it also needs to be done. So I guess like that's just like the happy medium of where, how can we advocate, but how can we protect ourselves? (laughs) You know, like I have no problem advocating on social media, but if I were to go outside and just like, even in, you know, in Denton, I'd be so scared for my life to advocate for myself in public. And like with other people, just because I don't think there is a strong presence and I don't think people, sorry to say this, but like care about us enough or they're not aware, you know? And so it's, it's a very hard line to kind of, do I cross or do I not, you know? So absolutely. Well, I think this is a good way to advocate, you know, by coming on this podcast. So yeah, thank you, because this is not easy to talk about, I'm sure. And um, I mean, even I'm getting, I'm over here, like getting so frustrated. I can feel my face (laughs) hot, like, yeah, I'm like, fix the world, music therapy. No. Um, But yeah, so thank you so much, like for talking with me about this. And I think that a lot of the listeners will really benefit from hearing this uh, conversation, hopefully. Um, Yeah, so I mean, in addition to your thesis, is there anything else? Like, what are your future plans with music therapy? I need to know what are your plans? Because I know you're going to be like the most successful person I know someday. (laughs) You're going to call me and I'm going to like be in shock. I'm going to say like, oh my god, a famous person is calling me because... Oh my goodness, stop. (laughs) Um, I mean, future plans are, I would love to work with older adults um, as part of the profession if I get to choose my population. Um, But also I'd love to pursue my PhD. I think being a professor, um, especially at a collegiate level, really allows you to help students identify and find themselves and really 
educate themselves on something that is really prevalent, you know? And I think that even by the time I get my PhD, I'll be like 45 or something. (laughs) Racism will still be prevalent, you know? It'll still be a topic that you need to address. And so um, kind of like our professors at T-Dub, they really advocate for any social injustice. Yeah. <laughs> shout out to Dr. DeMeo, Dr. MD. Shout out Dr. West for being yeah. about advocacy and social justice. That is not something you find everywhere. And exactly. we're extremely lucky to be where we are. Like, I feel like I'm living in a bubble, but also like, you know, it just, it's so empowering. Like, I just want to mm-hmm. go out and spread the word and spread the good word, you know? Exactly. It's like, it's one thing to advocate for yourself, but it's another to have friends, but it's also another to have like actual professors who have their degrees and who are practicing music therapy, who are also advocating for social injustices. Like, you know, like we need to target any type of racism and kind of advocate for ourselves and address the issue. And so I think that is such an important thing that I would like to pursue someday in the future. So that is <laughs> my future career plans for now. Oh my God. Well, I cannot wait to <laughs> cheer you on from afar and like see. You'll be with me right there. I, We're gonna I, pursue PhDs together. Okay, well, I don't know about <laughs> that, Dr. Chu. Okay, <laughs> I don't know about that. Marissa is tired. Marissa just wants to graduate already we'll graduate and then we'll take like a year off and then we'll go pursue our phd and then it'll be like 10 years and then later we'll be like dr marmalejo and dr q honestly it sounds really good i can see that in an article uh marmalejo and chu 28 parentheses comma after chu Oh, it'll be like APA 21st edition yeah (laughs) oh man anyway well oh my god that's super exciting and um again thank you so much for talking let's get these receipts uh take take a picture of this for evidence for the gram and then let's peace out yeah I just I want to leave something and I want people to be kind to themselves and just like give them give yourself a big hug and just like I want you guys to have compassion and really advocate for people especially if you know that a certain friend is going through something if they're Asian American or just to check up on your friend especially during this global pandemic like I see you Miss M like I hear you like I'm your biggest fan you're so precious to me like thank you so much for having me today. Stop, sweet baby angel i love you so much you're literally <laughs> so sweet okay oh my god all right well i will see you on the flip side megan bye bye